Hello, and welcome to another Sports Next Door podcast. My name is Owen. Today is Thursday, April 22nd, our first uh, Thursday pod in a while for obvious reasons. Uh, and I'm joined, as I always am, by my neighbor Max, who has a new Zoom background right now as we do this pod and has made the full move. Uh, how's it going, my friend? Pretty well. It's been a much more hectic, up and down, just variable week than I really remember in a long time. I guess today's Thursday. So three days ago, I got to Montreal, I've done some apartment hunting, I've had a training day at work. One of the craziest things, I guess this, I realize this sounds so spoiled and sheltered. But honestly, the past year during COVID, I forgot what real stress was like. Like um, yesterday, so I had my first job training day. And also, I was waiting to hear back on whether or not I'd get signed for the sublet I was hoping to get. And just Mm -hmm. like living with my parents for a year, those weren't real in the moment stressors and I like not having that for a year that hit me a lot harder than I thought and I'd kind of forgotten what that was like yeah it's we are both taking another step in the in the great journey we call life right I will be moving starting tomorrow and I'll have a new zoom background uh beginning this weekend and I'll be kicking it into high gear starting the new job as well if anyone heard that, that is the sound of me getting admitted into NBA Top Shot to come pick up a rebound pack. So that will be coming up later on the show. Uh, but before we get there, uh, we'll be talking a little bit of footy. Of course, the Super League has been taking the internet and world by storm. Uh, Max has got his combat corner. We got some hockey talk, a little bit of baseball, uh, and then we'll finish up with some basketball. And uh, we'll be a loaded show. It will be a little bit different than previous ones. Of course, we had a week off almost as well with all the chaos going on in our lives. I still have an exam to write tomorrow. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll just we'll, we'll go as we go along. And uh, maybe we'll have some live Leafs updates in here as well because they, will, they uh, have just kicked off their game against Calgary Flames. Uh, but we will also get there. I think they're playing Winnipeg, but yeah. Oh, shoot. Okay. Well... In any case, Felino's there, and, and that's the thing that I'm most excited to be watching, uh, no matter the opponent. All righty. Let's get right to it, shall we? Let's get right to it. And we will talk about the European Super League, which has been taking the world by storm, uh, not in a great way. And we essentially have a title fight. Max, let me relate it to your bread and butter sport between two giant behemoths that everyone hates so it's kind of like if jake paul fought logan paul but they were both had the physique of mike tyson that's kind of what this is and in you kind of just want to see them beat each other to death and hopefully everyone wins uh in this case it's not quite that result but we get to see uh the villain of most stories uefa and fifa become somewhat of the superheroes and that is really impressive if you can somehow become the villain against a corrupt corporation like FIFA. And that is what these clubs have managed to do. We had 12 clubs, six from the English Premier League, uh, three from the Italian Serie A, and three from the Spanish La Liga, all banding together to form a Super League. And I guess to North Americanize it, for those who still may not know what it is, essentially... Uh, I guess the closest comparison would be college sports. And so in the U.S., you've got your college teams and you've got a couple of those teams that are just a cut above everyone that make the majority of the money for college sports. So you've got in college football, you've got Alabama, Ohio State, Clemson, Michigan, uh, Georgia, all those like true schools that have just been around forever and have the biggest following, biggest fan bases. They drive the most money. And if those teams said, hey, we want more money because we bring in the most money, so we should be getting more money, we're actually going to leave college sports and go play in our own league against each other. 
and cut everyone else out. And so that's what these teams are doing. It also removes the threat of relegation, which is something I really love about soccer is that you can't tank in soccer. Like if you lose, you get demoted into another league and it has huge financial uh, repercussions, which we just don't see in North American sports. And so that's another thing. These super teams are removing that threat of relegation. And so they will come into complacency. They'll just spend a ton of money by all these players, but maybe the product gets a little bit worse, but they're still making billions and billions of dollars and leaving everyone else out to dry. And the biggest thing that touch home for fans, and again, if I could relate it to college football, if you are a small state school that is lucky enough to get scheduled against a team like Alabama, you know you're going to get your butt kicked, but there's still that opportunity. And this great team that has all these top-tier athletes is coming to your small school, and you get to watch them play. And it's just an experience like no other. And everyone has the opportunity to witness this. That gets taken away, right? All these, like, especially with your FA Cup and uh, the Commonwealth Cup, like whatever the smaller cups are, you've got these fourth division teams made up of guys who work part-time jobs during the week as well to supplement their income while trying to be soccer players. They have this, like, stadium that's just basically this old, like, track and field site, and you've got fans who and then people who come out onto their balconies a couple blocks away and try and watch from there like it's just so small and then you have a team like Manchester United coming to play it's like once in a lifetime opportunity and that is removing it and soccer is something even more so than most of the sports in North America is so founded within tradition within the community that you operate within and they were trying to suck that out and that is what that Super League has done and thank God that they are now starting to pull out from the obvious and how did they not see this coming? Every single person in the world said, no, you're not doing this. Like no one, no one thought it was a good idea. It's just, I guess you and I, right? Everyone's stuck at home overthinking everything. <laughs> and Florentino Perez, uh, who seemed to spearhead this, the owner of Real Madrid, was sitting in his basement or wherever he was, probably on his yacht going, I'm bored. Let's start a super league where I can just make a little bit more money to add to my trillions of dollars. And it's so relatable as something like you just think of the dumbest stuff while you're stuck in quarantine. And that's what this guy has come up with. And I'm so glad they got called on it. FIFA and UEFA threatened to not allow any of the players to play in world cup, other like marquee events. And that was really, I think the deal breaker for these teams. Um, and yeah, so it happened. It got created. It's definitely going to pop up again. Uh, right now they're trying to renegotiate the Champions League format. And I think that's why it really popped up to try and create some leverage for these big clubs. Uh, but no, they were the victim or they were the villain for everyone. Even like Amazon and Sky Sports, all the broadcasters were going against these guys because they're trying to take away from the Premier League brand, the Bundesliga, the La Liga, Syria, all the like money they'd invest in those leagues and having the broadcasting rights. That means nothing if those big clubs leave. And so they were even against them. <laughs> and just so unreal it's like i don't know again i go back to this kind of this jake paul fight like there's not many people right now existing in the internet that are more unlikable than jake paul but it's like jake paul was fifa and uefa you found someone else that you hate even more and now you actually want jake paul to like knock them out it's just it's so hard to fathom and that is what happened in this case and um I guess we push it all aside and hopefully we keep moving forward. We got Champions League coming up next week. Really exciting semifinals. Of course, the Oil Classicos will be going at it. More rich clubs. Uh, they're going to make a ton of money off of this semifinal. So I don't know why they're trying. They're complaining trying to make a Super League. But uh, that is the two cents I've had. Everyone's heard about it all week. There's not really not much more to say. Uh, it's all done now. But we'll probably see it in a couple of years' time. Um, yeah, the Super League is dead. <laughs> And very impassioned. Yes, this is my ramble. Um, I guess in other news, TFC lost their first game of the season. If we're talking closer to home, but hard to get invested into them until something exciting happens, like their uh, Concacaf Champions League victory just a couple pods ago. Uh, but yeah, that kicks off the show. Just had to rant about Super League. We will now drift into Combat Corner after this quick break, and we're back for some Combat Corner. Uh, we got UFC 261 coming up this weekend. 
really exciting stuff uh, with some great fights scheduled. And Max is here to break us, break it down for us. Yeah. <laughs> you can tell I'm rusty. You can tell I'm rusty. <laughs> and take a three days, four days extended break and you're wearing the automated tellings. Let's hope that uh, doesn't affect the preview breakdown skills. We've got three title fights that I'm really excited for all of them on a really awesome main card for UFC 261. The triple title fight header seems to be coming more common. I mean, we just had one of those two cards ago. They tried to schedule one of those for December. I guess two of the fights that happened in March were originally scheduled for December, but it's a good sign that champions are being active. I mean, Kamar Usman just fought in February, and that's that kind of activity is what makes these sort of stacked cards possible. I'm dreading it a little because I'm going to be have to be up for work the next morning, but there's no way I sleep on this. So just watch it and um, let my sleep do a bit of suffering. I think I get an hour lunch break, so maybe I'll take a nap in there. But I want to start with the first title fight on the card. Um, Valentina Shevchenko versus Jessica Andrade. And I'm so happy this fight got made. I'm so happy Val or Jessica has moved up to straw weight because this is what the kind of fight the division needs. Valentina Shevchenko has been so effortlessly dominant against a string of challengers who were challengers only in name, who just didn't have the technique the skills, the power, the anything to give you a moment of doubt about what was going to happen. And all her title defenses thus far have borne that out. But in Jessica Andrade, we have something different. We have a title challenger who can actually pose a threat to Shevchenko if in no other way than her power. And we got to see that on display in her flyweight deb debut where she took uh, 2K gain out in one round with a vicious body shot, two vicious body shots really, with 10 seconds left in the round. I... Shevchenko is still going to have a big technical skill advantage in the striking, probably in the judo throws, the clinch, if she gets on top in the grappling as well. So it's not some sort of super fight where you have two technically even fighters but Andrade has power and she has landed that consistently and continually throughout her career against a different swath of opponents some of whom have been pretty good and the Chukagian one is really impressive because Chukagian is a very defensive striking fighter you didn't see uh Shevchenko land anything as damaging on the feet over the three rounds they went as Andrade landed in that one round. The other thing about Andrade is she just doesn't give up. She always moves forward and her athleticism, her power, her tenaciousness just helps her out a lot of the time. You saw that best on display in the two fights she had against Rose Namajunas. In the first fight, in the first round, Rose put an absolute clinic on her on the feet and the striking, just out distancing her, out moving her, timing her with the jab every time. But Andrade didn't get discouraged. She kept walking forward. She went for that body slam and got a knockout via it. And in their second fight, you saw more the same where early Rose had the advantage, but Andrade didn't get dissuaded, kept going. And it's hard to believe Rose won that fight if you just look at their faces at the end of it, because Rose was bleeding, her eye had a huge welt on it and swelling, and all of that damage happened in the third round, which speaks to the durability, the longevity, and the power that Andrade has. And that's really a test that we haven't seen Shevchenko face yet. I mean, her best opponent at flyweight for sure has been Joanna Janjacek, but Joanna's not known as a power puncher. So even though that fight was really interesting and technical and a bigger challenge than anything else Valentina's faced at flyweight, when you were, once we were two rounds into that fight and we saw Valentina controlling it, 
there wasn't really any suspense or doubt about how the rest of the fight was going to go. Whereas with this one, there is, even if Valentina wins the first two rounds, technically touching Andrade, getting the better of her on the timing with the jabs and straights and maybe some judo trips and top control, the third round, the fourth round, the fifth round, unless we see like a visibly fatigued and worn down Andrade from some kind of beating Valentina's put on her, then I'm still going to be holding my breath as they go to meet in the middle again because Andrade is just going to keep going forward and that also gives Valentina a great opportunity to put all of her skill on display because she's such a technically smart striker she doesn't initiate or take a ton of charge forward risks she wants to set up the KO very tactically one piece at a time and kind of needs the right dance partner to show what she can do. And you saw that best in the Jessica eye knockout she had where Jessica kept eye, that is, kept walking forward. Valentina lands the body kick, lands the body kick, lands the body kick, and then goes high. But every time to land that, she needed eye to be moving forward. And I think Andrade is going to do that. I think Andrade is probably going to show that same head movement she showed in the second Rose fight and a little less, but still in the Chukagian fight, which works pretty well, like at first at least, against like straight trajectory shots with which Shevchenko tends to throw. I don't think I've ever seen Andrade throw anything straight. It's all got loop on it, whether they're hooks, uppercuts, head body. So yeah, I, I'm just really looking forward to a fight where there's a not zero chance Valentina Shevchenko could get knocked out where I'm almost certain her opponent's going to walk her down and make give Shevchenko the chance to land and land often and hopefully land hard and yeah it's more excitement than the women's flyweight division I think has seen in a title fight yet so hopefully it lives up to that and hopefully it sets the stage and moves the division forward. And we start to see more contenders like Andrade piling up at the top so as to have more and more of these fights. Because that's what we have at women's strawweight when uh, Weili Zhang and Rose Namajunas are gonna fight for the title in the co-main event. Um, women's strawweight is by far the most interesting women's division because of the fighters at the top. You've got the champ, Wei, excuse me, Zhang Weili. You've got uh, Rose Namajunas. You've got Yoni and Jacek, and hopefully someday we have Tatiana Suarez as well. And those are, I think, the four like most dominant, uh, complete women's MMA fighters especially that you have a mast in one division. So I think Joanna is a great measuring stick. Um, both Rose and Whaley have gone 25 minutes with Joanna. In my opinion, Joanna won both those fights, but we did get to see the test, the striking on display from both of them because it's a real test that women's strawweight struggled with for a while, but they both definitely met the test and showed they were up to task. Um, Rose, like I was just saying in the last bit against Andrade, she looked phenomenal at times. Her movement is so great, just staying defensively out of the way, having fantastic timing on her jabs and straights. She landed so many of those in both fights against Andrade. Um, She's got the grappling that can turn the fight in her favor, give her one more tool in the jackknife, so to speak, to mix it up. You've seen her go to that sometimes just very quickly at times, but it's always in the back pocket there. Um, the leg kick timing she showed was fantastic against Andrade. They were few and far between, but a, just a really simple, efficient strike she mixed it up with. I, I think the striking is as high level as it gets in women's MMA. And I think you can say the same about Zhang Weili as she showed in that fight of the year against Ioana Jacek last March. It was such a close one. I still think Ioana won it, but if 
Whaley probably took it off her power, having a more visible impact and causing that welt. Um, but she put out a crazy volume against Joanna. And just like Rose, great movement. All the strikes she throws are so fluid and technical. And I'm just so excited to see like these two really high level complete strikers go at it because that it I feel like they both kind of reach that high efficient level of striking and it's going to be really interesting to see if we have some sort of rock paper scissors situation where Andrade does kind of well against Rose Wei Li obviously gets Andrade out of the way in no time at all um, they've both had their ups and downs over time against Joanna. Obviously, Rose also knocked Joanna out once. And I think Rose has a bit of like a technical edge just in terms of making reads, being a bit smarter and better with the shot selection, which, but I think Whaley has a bit of a physical edge being bigger, stronger, a little more explosive. And I think, in, like I said, when I was talking about Andrade just moments ago, against in the matchups with Rose and Andrade, you saw Rose start really, really well, but then the athleticism and physical advantage Andrade had kind of slowly took over in both fights. In the first one, Andrade gets the knockout in the second one, it's only a three-round fight, but the third round was by far Andrade's best round, the round she won in that fight. And it would have been really interesting to see what a fourth and fifth round would have looked like. So I'm curious if Rose's camp and corner is thinking about that, if she's thinking about that, how she's going to try and maintain the pace she can set or wants to set early over five rounds, because I think Whaley can do a lot of what Andrade did in not being dissuaded, continuing to come forward, answering a shot with her own shot. We saw that in the Joanna fight and landing with power. So I, I really don't know. I think these two both do everything so well on the feet and it's gonna be really interesting to see like which takes, dominates the slightly more technical, striker or the slightly more athletic fighter it should be a fantastic co-main event and then there's the main event Kamaru Usman versus Jorge Masvidal a rematch eight nine months after their first meeting which occurred on seven eight days notice um, Kamaru has had the one title defense against Burns since Masvidal hasn't fought so I want to start with Masvidal there's looking at how the fight went there's a couple things i feel like he could have done better he basically once usman got masvidal behind the black line the mini octagon within the octagon it like usman was just in his office he was able to mix strikes feints and takedowns to get uh, Masvidal against the cage effortlessly pretty well once Masvidal was that close to it. And from there, it was just clinch dominance of Matt Usman holding him there, not letting him off and staying busy enough with foot stomps and body strikes to not have the ref separate them. The other thing for Masvidal was the shot selection seemed to not help him in terms of that cage control. He'd throw like these loopy shots that Usman would be able to duck under and like put his head on a straight trajectory to close the distance in between those loopy shots. And he'd throw some kicks in the Southpaw Orthodox up the middle that Usman was able to catch and threaten off of. So more straight shots from Masvidal and just urgency to never let his feet get outside of that octagon that's within the octagon because that's where Usman got to work. The takedown defense itself and the get-up ability looked pretty good for Masvidal. And I, I don't follow him religiously or anything, but almost all the clips I've seen of him over that this past year have been him practicing his grappling defense, saying, I'm going to put an end to this, the crotch sniffing and 
that's a lot of what he's saying. Like the difference this time is I'm not, I was so focused on just cutting weight and making it to championship weight and into the cage that I couldn't put all of my focus elsewhere. So you've had this almost year with the rematch on your mind. You've had around a month, maybe a little more to get ready. Uh, you should have a game plan going in. The weight cut shouldn't be a huge distraction the way it was last fight week. So even though I don't love the way Usman won that last fight and wasn't particularly impressed by it, it it's what has been key to Usman's success in his championship reign. His physicality and athleticism has let him dictate where the fight takes place, decide how it's going to go, and whatever he's decided has worked out for him. If he wants to strike with a Damian Maya, Colby Covington, Gilbert Burns, he can do that. If he wants to wrestle against Tyron Woodley, Jorge Masvidal, he can do that. Uh, Rafael Dos Anjos before the title fight. That's None of those guys have been able to change where Usman's wanted the fight to play out, and he's won the fight in his Trojanson field every time. Now, the consistent thing within all those fights or the selection of where that will take place has been it's been the least risky place for Usman. He's chosen not to get into the guard of Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belts like Woodley or excuse me Maya or Burns chosen decided he had a striking advantage over Covington he certainly had the physicality to make that implement that striking advantage and he's decided he has a grappling advantage over guys like Woodley and Masvidal now most of those fights he's looked dominant like against Woodley Woodley looked like he had nothing left nothing for him at all at, by the time the fight was over. Masvidal, he was tired, but he wasn't broken. And Usman, I think, admitted as much, saying, like, I don't feel like I broke him last time. And part of that is just Usman did the safest thing he could at all times. He, When he had Masvidal against the cage, he didn't drop his hands, lock his hands for a body lock or a double leg because it would have given Masvidal a chance to get away from the cage. When he had Masvidal on the ground, he didn't ever posture up or go hunting for submissions because it would have given Masvidal a chance to get up. He was pretty cautious on the feet, on the striking. So I'm really curious, especially coming off this Gilbert Burns knockout that he had, what he's going to do differently. I mean, he's set the stage for himself to really impress here. I, he has that knockout over Burns. He calls out Masvidal for the rematch. He's saying, I'm going to break this guy. So I feel like he has to do it better and he has to accept a little more risk to do that in the striking and in the grappling. So he has to be more desperate for takedowns against the cage. He has to I, I'm curious what he does in the striking, really. I, I, does the confidence of knocking out burns and landing those straights, those jabs from orthodox and southpaw mean he's going to do the same thing? Because I think burns is way below Masvidal in terms of striking ability and levels, just in terms of distance management, shot selection. I know burns hurt Usman and Masvidal didn't, stagger him the same way Burns did but that was very early in the fight and Usman was in control basically as soon as that was 20 seconds past so no excuses for Masvidal this is his moment he's asked for it there are a lot of things he can do better shot selection throw the punches more straight don't throw silly stuff when your back is against the cage don't let your back get against the cage the uh, calf kicks too could be real interesting coming from the same camp as Dustin Poirier. Those were not, I think, as big as a lot of people have made them out to be, but a significant part of Poirier's victory over McGregor. It doesn't take many. Masvidal has the power to certainly make a difference with them. And he looked to go to it early in that fight, kind of got away from it. So if he can keep it in the middle, land a few more of those, throw more straight trajectory shots that dissuade Usman from using his usual pressure style 
could be fascinating or Usman could raise his stock even higher on because that's one of the most impressive things to me in combat sports when you call someone out say you're going to do something and then you do it so Usman Masvidal too can't wait I'm really excited for this fight as well and we're back and talking hockey and it's been a week so we got a lot to talk about yeah you would think so <laughs> but I there's a lot of leaf stuff that I just don't want to talk about because it's been pedaled back and forth so why don't we kick it off with a little bit of positive news and I don't know when you go back and watch if you're a YouTube watcher then you'll have seen my reactions while Max was doing his combat corner it is three two in the first period between Leafs and Jets an absolute gong show so before we get there let's take a moment to celebrate Patrick Marlowe and what an incredible accomplishment it has been and continues to be that he has now passed Gordie Howe uh, in terms of the all-time games played ever in the NHL and just like couldn't happen to a better guy. And he still can, you can see, he still can move out there. He, it's not like he's a pylon, right? His role has changed, but he can still be productive and just really an incredible thing to see, not just simply being able to play in all of those games, because he's an uber talented individual. The most impressive part to me is the durability that you can continue to play game night after night after night in this league that just takes pieces of you every time you step on the ice and to continue to go back out there. He hasn't missed the game since the 0809 season. It's just unbelievable. Him and Keith Yandel and Phil Kessel are like the three top like Ironmen left in the NHL. And it's just incredible like that they continue to play and not like you could catch a puck to the face or a stick or you could pull a hamstring or you could have like a food poisoning, but it just hasn't happened. And he's been able to play so many games. It's just really, really incredible. And so I wanted to shout out Patrick Marlowe and a lot of great memories from him as well, especially those team Canada years. Yeah. That's, that's the interest. I think there were some people who are a bit sad to see how get Mr. Hockey get passed. Like when you talk about, tiers of players what Gordy Howe has accomplished in terms of goal scoring in terms of hardware is is just in like that hall of fame cut above so that was a lot of the discussion deliberating I was hearing this week like is this hall of fame worthy like how will we look back on Marlowe's career the team Canada gold obviously the most impressive part of his trophy collection for sure and loved watching him be a part of that 2014-2010 gold winning roster we had a little bit of a run with him on the Leafs um but yeah I mean when I think about Patrick Marlowe my first memory goes back to like playing NHL 06 and using the San Jose Sharks and having him be one of those top players so Jonathan Chihu. I mean, I guess we're also still talking about Joe Thornton, but to still be talking about a guy from that time now is super impressive. And I think what you're speaking about in terms of longevity just speaks to a mindset of professionalism, of doing all the little things right consistently over a long period of time. Because that's what it takes to not have those pulled hamstrings on great decision-making on the ice to not get into those situations where that might happen. Certainly a bit of luck as well, but yeah. Um, hats off to Patrick Marlowe. Tip of the cap. All right. My dad asking me if I'm watching the Leafs game. <laughs> so a little positivity out of the way. Let's get negative shall we? I guess is the just most blunt way to put it. The Leafs have lost five in a row, or at least they are winless in their last five. You get the loser point uh, in two of those games. They have lost two in a row to the Vancouver Canucks, a team ravaged by COVID-19 who have not played in a month. And it feels a little bit like deja vu all over again. A famous quote by Yogi Berra. Uh, this is the time of the year where the sky is falling 
and the Leafs continue to revert back to the ways that have so dreadfully pained us and scarred us as fans. And um, whether it's the goaltending, which was just horrendous in that third period from David Riddick, uh, Jack Campbell still feels injured. And so he's been scuffling as of late. His last couple starts have not been good. The defense, I don't know what's going on. Just in this first period, TJ Brody threw the puck like a pass to Morgan Riley right in front of their own net, and the Jets basically got a freebie for their second goal. It it the the bottom six scoring has been non-existent. Uh, we've already got a Wayne Train and Jumbo Joel goal uh, in this game tonight, which is probably two hundred percent of the production we've gotten over the last five games from the bottom six. That's what it feels like. Uh, yeah, I don't know where to go. Hyman's out now for a couple of weeks. Really lucky prognosis on the injury for him. He should be back in time for the playoffs. Thank goodness, because uh, we cannot miss him. But I just, I don't, there's just so much not happening with the Leafs right now. And and hopefully they need to get this all out of their system. But we have sang this tune before. And it just, I don't know what needs to change. <laughs> yeah, it's... In a sense, I'm almost grateful because I don't really have playoff expectations at this point. And I, we have been very up and down this season. So maybe like if they pull out a 10-game winning streak to end off the season, maybe I, against my better judgment, get my hopes up for the playoffs. But right now, I, I can't even say with certainty I'm expecting a first-round win for the Leafs especially with the way this team has been cursed in the first round for so many years. So <laughs> I'm almost happy to be going in with low expectations because if we had this like dynamite team, then, and like the first round playoff shenanigans happened, that would be that much more crushing. But at the same time, how sad is that, that we have, a team that on paper is as good as any in the league and should be able to be a serious Stanley Cup contender. And I can't even have the confidence that they're going to make it out of the first round. Um, just a team that shows you so much at times, like with the top six forwards we have, the signs of life, the bottoms, almost everyone on the bottom six has shown at some point in this season Brody and Riley is good a top two pair as you're going to find anywhere in the league. Muzzin and Hall have at times been a great shutdown D pair. And when you describe a roster like that, you don't need any better than average in your goaltending. And Frederick Anderson and Jack Campbell should at least both be average. And at times they have been less than that. So, man, I... I ran out of excuses for them watching the last Vancouver, the first Vancouver Canucks game, because there have been so many games we've lost where I've been like, you know what? We generated the scoring chances. They got a lucky bounce, but at the end of the day, a win's a win and a loss is a loss. And we don't remember the little details when years later. That is the theme that has popped up. It is the... I guess the thing that has been going around is the deserve to win meter where you take all the metrics from the game. And based on that, what team deserves to win the game? If you play that game a thousand times, right? What's the outcome? You might as well cover it in propane, light it on fire, throw it into a hurricane in the middle of a blizzard uh, in hell. It doesn't matter. The Leafs don't follow common sense. Metrics don't apply. This is a team that needs like, Voodoo cast upon it or reverse voodoo cast upon it to just change something. And what I need to see is Morgan Riley needs to figure out his defensive zone, everything. Muzzin and Hall need to get healthy because that is the only reasonable explanation. They have fallen off a cliff this last week. Like they just both look like the slowest players on the ice. They don't know what they're doing. They, I think they're both hurt. That's the only logical explanation. We now get to see Sandine and Dermot get run, uh, and maybe a couple other defense might get thrown in there because Bogosian's going to be out for a week after that crazy fall he took into the boards and then got up like nothing happened, which was just wild, the mountain man. I need to see 
more from the bottom six. And a big piece of that is going to come from Nick Foligno tonight. We're going to see how he does. That's a big leadership key to add. You've got Joe now. You've got Spezza. You've got Foligno. You've got Wayne Simmons. You've got John Tavares. Like, all these guys need to, I don't know, just lead. Like, be better. <laughs> You're throwing in guys left and right. So what can you get from Adam Brooks? What can you get from Pierre Engvall? What can you get from Ilya Mikheyev? What can you get from Galchenyuk? He's running on the second line tonight with uh, Nylander and Tavares. And I think Felino's getting run with the first line for now. But when Hyman comes back, who knows what the orientation is going to be. Just need a little bit more from everyone. Most importantly, you need more from the goalies. And can Riddick get more run if he plays like that? No. We're in the same situation as that terrible Hutchinson game a couple weeks ago where I said he was never going to start for them again. And then he did, and it was okay. Freddie's not back to the playoffs. Jack looks hurt. So you don't want to play him that much, but that's what it's going to have to be. If you're not getting anything from this goalie that you've traded for, you traded a third round pick. That's a decent asset. He needs to perform. And so I just, I need more of this team. They're first, they're hanging on by a thread. The Winnipeg Jets have a power play. They're going in the second period. This is it. This is a huge game. This is a, like, this means so much right now in terms of the table Obviously, they're going to have a playoff spot. They're going to clinch it at some point just with the loser points that they've been racking up. But it doesn't matter where they finish in the top four in the division because you have to beat two of those three teams to make it to the final four. And the way they've been playing this last five games, I don't see them beating anyone in a series. But they have the potential. They 100% have the potential. They have the leadership. They have the goaltending. They have the pieces there. I'm still iffy on the defense, but when you look at Pittsburgh's two cups, they were iffy on the defense as well. And yeah. so I think this, this is a team that can beat the Lightning and beat the Avalanche if they play at their absolute best. If Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner light it up on the goal scoring, as well as John Tavares and um, William Nylander, if the defensive two way play that those guys have shown as well can be at the level that they've shown and shutting down like Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl for 180 minutes, then I think this team's ceiling is the Stanley Cup. But I think the floor is like finishing fucking third in this division and having a mediocre first round playoffs. And I, years of abuse have me ready for the floor, not the ceiling. Yeah. It's, if, if they don't make it out of the first round this year, I, I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. <laughs> but, yeah. Okay. We'll take in the game at the end of this podcast. Yeah. There's not much more I really want to talk about anymore. I feel kind of... <laughs> yeah, the one, I don't know if you call it optimism, is I don't think any of the top Canadian division teams seem to be gathering any sort of momentum right now. Every team, it feels like, is racking up as many losses as they can. So, like, obviously, in this form of divisional play, someone has to walk away with points every night. But this past week, no one seems to be doing it consistently, except maybe the Ottawa Senators and Vancouver Canucks. But Calgary, Montreal, both not playing as they should be fighting for that fourth spot. And neither Winnipeg nor Edmonton has managed to put together any consistent run as of late. So... Maybe a little bit of hope there, but. All right. That's all I'm willing to talk about about hockey for now, but let's take a quick break and then we'll come back for some baseball, some basketball and wrap things up, shall we? And we're back. Bit of baseball, I think, coming up next. Oh, what do you got? Yep. Just a couple quick notes before we dive into the basketball portion of the podcast, but I uh, want to talk quickly about the Boston Red Sox, who lead the American League East, of course, the division where our Toronto Blue Jays also reside. Uh, the Red Sox, the hitting has been wonderful for them, and uh, the question mark surrounding this team was going to be the pitching, and they've gotten exceptional pitching so far, above average, and that is what they need when they have a lineup that can produce runs with the best of them, uh, especially Eduardo Rodriguez. I got my first look at him this season. Uh, he dominated the Jays on, on Tuesday night. And uh, yeah, the Red Sox in control right now. Tampa Bay has had a, is on a bit of a win streak. And so they're climbing the division, but right now it's, it's Boston. And, and that was not 
what people thought going into the season. They thought the Boston Red Sox would be hanging out with the Jays right in the middle of that division, or at least that is what I thought. Uh, but it is a very long season, so tough to make calls yet. Toronto Blue Jays, touch on them quickly. Uh, they split the series with the Red Sox on Wednesday, which is big because, of course, the Red Sox are winning the division right now and are the team playing the best out of anyone in the East. Uh, I think for the Jays, they again, I read off that the, the injured list on the last podcast, they need to get healthy. And a big thing for this lineup, which has continued to struggle, is George Springer. They just recently adjusted the lineup so that Kevin Biggio replaced Marcus, Marcus Semien at the top of the lineup. Semien's been struggling, but George Springer was the guy they had penciled in to be their top of the order guy. And so right now he's not there. Everyone has been bumped into a slightly elevated role, which just makes things a little bit more difficult. So once George Springer comes back, he sits top of that lineup. You bump everyone down a spot. It just makes it so much more dangerous and everyone feels so much more comfortable. Uh, and so just waiting for George Springer to come back. The Jays make a uh, peripheral move today, uh, acquiring Jeremy Beasley uh, for cash considerations. That is a move just to add a little bit more pitching right now. Uh, Thomas Hatch moved to the 60-day IL as the corresponding move there. Uh, but really with the Jays, they're getting pretty solid bullpen pitching right now. Uh, pretty decent starting pitching. The hitting needs to come around. And, and the idea of coming into this season is the team – that was built is going to be a team that was playing 10, eight games. Uh, and that has not been the case so far. They've been playing much tighter, low scoring affairs. Uh, and I think that's bound to change. The Los Angeles Dodgers are 14 and four. They're the best team in the league. They are like already there's some teams who are good. And then they take their time because like in the regular season of baseball and, and across all sports, when you know your team is good, sometimes you'll be a little bit complacent going into the season, but this team just has so much talent that they just break uh, and they get guys out and they're 14 and four. They won their first series against the San Diego Padres last weekend. And they are actually just about to start their second uh, series of three against the Padres starting tonight, uh, which will be great because both those teams are off to great starts. And again, top two teams in the league, in my opinion. And finally, uh, I want to talk about the Oakland Athletics, who have won 11 games in a row. They started 1-7 on the season. They are now 12-7 and seven, uh, and leading the American League West. They had a walk-off last night against the Seattle Mariners in the 10th inning to get that 11th straight wing, and they're on fire. So shout-out to the Oakland A's. And then the last note I have for baseball is the fans are out of practice. <laughs> Been a bunch of clips on Twitter, on my timeline, of people – missing foul balls, running for foul balls and wiping out people getting balls in nachos and dropping the nachos and dropping the drinks and just not having a great time. It's been so long since we've seen live sports that people don't know how to act. All right. So clean it up, fellas. I know you've been sitting watching TV, but you got to get out at some point and toss a ball around, right? Even if it's off a wall, get those reflexes back. It's been some embarrassing showings from the boys uh, in the stands. Especially, I just saw one where the guy went for the ball, fell over the, the seats in front of him, and nachos just go flying. Like, if you're someone who cares about their food, like this gentleman seemed to, you got to keep those nachos locked in. So, yeah, that, hey, maybe <laughs> that also speaks the food enjoyment to the diminished reflexes. Yes. Statistically, I wonder how, what the chances or how many people in each arena have gone through covid oh my gosh i have no idea but i thought you were gonna say the chances of you getting a home run or a foul ball go up because there's less people in the stadium so you just got to make sure you're in a decent spot and then you could go run to an empty seat and grab a ball and i think that's why we're seeing a couple more tumbles because people feel like they got a shot at the ball and so they're going for it but they're not used to being that athletic so <laughs> it's ending up with some spills whereas if you had a full stadium they wouldn't be going for it because they know they got a shot <laughs> so some entertainment for us there all right, let's move off of baseball. We're into basketball. We've had a bunch of storylines happen this past week. Uh, and I know it's a team we've already talked about, but we've kicked around the stories. We're coming back around to the New York Knicks, who have won eight games in a row. They are a hard-nosed team. You know top teams in the Eastern Conference do not want to play these guys in a playoff series because even if you beat them, they are going to make it difficult. And it feels like kind of like the Raptors team of last year where those Boston Celtics by far the more talented team, but the Raptors just threw the kitchen sink at them, made their lives really, really unpleasant. 
uh, and you have some bruises going in that next playoff series. And so that's what I feel like this Knicks team is built on. Hopefully MSG opens up in time for the playoffs because that place will be rocking. They love blue blood teams like this. And it has been led by Julius Randle. Wow. <laughs> what a leap this guy has taken because he was the turnover prone bowling ball uh, guy who just threw up like really poor efficiency, a lot of turnovers, but he did put up kind of like meaningless stats. And that has completely changed the season. He's locked in on defense. There've been a couple clips where Kyrie's hit some tough shots, but he's still right there. He's moving his feet, right? For such a large guy, he moves really well. And offensively, he's shooting 40%, really, really impressive shooting numbers, uh, has done some great isolation work too. Like his face-up game has really improved this year and he's just making better passes, less turnovers. Uh, and this team looks really, really solid and looks really fun to play for right now. It's a great story because uh, the Knicks fans have been waiting for so, so long to have a team like this. And yeah, just a fun ride right now. And shout out to a Canadian RJ. Uh, who's been shooting well as of late and and is a guy who come playoff time his game is suited a little bit more for that physicality because he's a guy who can get his shot in a number of different ways it feels like the entire eastern conference right now though is the one with the momentum like the knicks leading the way but i think the heat of one three straight the wizards six and our raps not doing too bad yeah i think it's because they're all playing each other right now Okay. Like some of those Eastern teams are playing other Eastern teams that are bad and just beating up on them. Like the Cavs, the Magic, the Pistons. Uh, I guess you could, I don't know, like the Pacers. They, a bunch of those teams have lost a lot recently. So you could say it's a bit of a schedule thing, but yeah, maybe the East is having a bit of a glow up. I just think they're still nowhere near the, the depth of the Western Conference. It's those top three teams in the East. But you do bring up a great point. The Washington Wizards now have won six in a row uh, and have seemingly clawed their way out of the depths of the Eastern Conference, now holding the 10 seed. I thought it was going to be a, uh, Chicago's to lose, and obviously has been. They've lost it now. The Raptors, I, I again, I don't have, I, they still have a pretty tough schedule the next couple of weeks coming up against some like top teams in the Western Conference. So I, my expectations are still a little bit tapered. Um, because these are the games that the Raps should be winning and they have, which is excellent. Uh, but like it was the Bulls spot to lose and the Wizards have come out of nowhere and clawed their way into that spot. And it's been really fun to see. And this is, this was the pitch that you were making when you're coming up with a play in tournament is that teams like this who have just had a terrible season, they still have enough talent that they can make their way into that 10 seed. And then it makes things exciting. And so Bradley Beal, excellent, of course. Russell Westbrook's really turned it up. Um, and it seems like he, this is the player he's sorting, sort of becoming now, is he's going to have like one really great month every year and the rest of it's going to be meh. But like he's putting up so many triple doubles. He now leads the league in clutch field goal percentage, which is like shocking. Um, but he, he's been playing really well and this Wizards team's starting to click uh, and they're winning the games they're supposed to a lot of games against the weaker Eastern conference teams, but Hey, you got to win those games and they've moved up really impressive. Uh, and it's going to now be a three horse race for that 10 seed, which in the grand scheme of things, your average NBA fan is not going to care at all. But if you're a team like us, like the Raptors, who's involved with it, it's exciting and it's going to get fans into it. And so really going to be interesting to see how it plays out the rest of the season. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what the nationwide attention is like on those playing games and how exciting, how much hype they are. Like yeah. the games themselves generally. Yeah, I think the West is going to be unreal with Ja, Luca. Well, it might be Dame. The Mavericks are closing in on the on the Trailblazers. Uh, and then you've got Steph and probably not Zion at this point. The Pelicans have really fallen out, uh, but it'll be the Spurs. And they draw a decent crowd. All right. Speaking Western Conference, the Los Angeles Clippers are 10-1 and one since the trade deadline when they acquired Rajon Rondo. I don't know if that's the Rondo effect, but it is something to, to behold. And I criticized the trade at the time. And I think what I said was this trade works out for the Clippers if Rondo can give them 2020 Rondo with those Lakers. Uh, because that Rondo is 
playoff Rondo, right? It's playoff Rondo. That is what you are trading for if you're the Clippers. And that might just be the magic that, that gets them to where everyone expected them to be last year, right? You've still got Paul George and Kawhi Leonard, two of the top five wings in the league. I'm talking wings. <laughs> and they need Rondo to almost be that third guy, which is crazy to say, but that's what he was for the Lakers last year. It was LeBron AD and then Rondo hitting threes. It was wild. And him making great plays and setting up Dwight Howard for lobs and playing defense and talking trash and getting in guys' ears. And I think Rondo might be that guy for LA, but it will be really interesting to see if he can conjure up playoff Rondo once again. Cause if he can't, then again, I think the Clippers are dead in the water. Just the, the, the vibe on that team. Again, another team that feels a little voodoo-y. I don't want to talk about the Leafs, but yeah, feels a little voodoo-y. Uh, and, and yeah, 10-1. and one. You can't argue with the results so far uh, from Rondo's arrival. Yeah, but that was, I remember when we were talking at the start of the season, it was I, the Clippers. I think we both had them in our top three, top four. It was never about, like, this was the expectations, I guess, almost bare minimum where they're at right now in the season. It, it's about the playoffs. It's about not having that collapse as they did last year. So the evaluation period is still pending. Okay. The last uh, thing I want to talk about before we jump into MVP talk uh, is LaMelo Ball is going to be back. We thought he was done for the season, but due to mutant healing powers, uh, his wrist is looking ready to go. He'll be back next week at a time when the Charlotte Hornets have struggled a little bit and they need him. And it helps his rookie of the year case immensely because if he had missed all of those games, he probably would have been out of the running. It would have been an MB Brogdon type situation a couple of years ago. But I think now with him being back and if he can resume the level of play he was at before the injury, he's a lock for rookie of the year. Uh, and just honestly, just a really fun guy to watch. So I'm excited that he's going to be back. Well, I haven't been tracking too much. Who else would be Halliburton? Halliburton's in there. Uh, Anthony Edwards has put up numbers. Um, kind of those are the three, I would say. Uh, no one else really this in the... Probably a good precursor to the MVP talk, but then there's also team performance, like just where the Hornets are at and the fact that Lamelo has contributed to a winning team in a significant way as opposed to contributing to a not winning teams. Exactly. I even I wonder how much that should or would balance out the missed games. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And it actually is going to be the talking point for our MVP conversation coming up. This might be one of the loaded, the like deepest MVP conversations we've ever had. And it just speaks to how much star talent there is now in this NBA's day and age and how many guys mean so much to their team. I will tell you who the guys I think have a shot at it. And then I will tell you about the guys who are left out of the conversation, but shouldn't be right. So Nikola Jokic, I think is your front runner based on him having an all-time offensive season. But if other guys are healthy, I don't know if he'd be at the front, but definitely deserves to be there. And he's the guy who stayed durable. And I think in a season with COVID, with injuries ravaging, the fact that he's managed to stay consistent throughout the whole season, that in itself is a major accomplishment. So I have him at the top there. Joel Embiid is right there too. And probably would be the front runner for the MVP if he didn't miss quite a substantial amount of time for injury. And that kind of takes away from his case, just simply not having the number of games played to have that true impact. But I think if he had played more, he, he's definitely right there. And probably the, if you're talking first half of the season, he's your MVP. We've got Giannis Antetokounmpo, who is perennially going to be in the conversation, but will not win it this year because. Uh, voter fatigue, but definitely putting up similar numbers as his past two MVP campaigns and probably should be on the five-person ballot at the end of the year. Chris Paul, not putting up the numbers, but the Phoenix Suns are, I think, 41-16. and 16. They're a game and a half back of first uh, in the entire league, but also first in the Western Conference. And it is truly because of Chris Paul. Like, he has elevated that team so substantially. It's, it's incredible to see. Um, and he doesn't put up the same stats, but if you ask anyone in the league how much he means to that Suns team, like it's just it's the definition of value, right? 
most valuable player, Chris Paul has to be in there somewhere. He just doesn't have the same statistical resume as, as his peers. And then we've got Steph Curry, who's been putting up absurd numbers. And I think partially because of what he's done over this last month has really helped inflate and you get that recency bias where now everyone's like Steph MVP, Steph MVP, Steph MVP. You can't be an MVP if your team is 500. I'm sorry. It just, you can't. Now he can be in the conversation, but he's not a top three MVP candidate, despite what he's doing. It is incredible, but your team still has to be good. Like I think Russell Westbrook was the MVP on an Oklahoma city thunder team that went 46 and 36. And that is a record that was just like, he barely got him there. So if you're 500, you basically have no shot. No matter how special you are, you just have to have more impact on team success. And then finally, you got Damian Lillard, um, a guy who continually gets pushed to the side in these conversations, but I wanted to highlight him just because he is so awesome. And, and another guy, kind of like Chris Paul, but he actually has the stats to back it up, where he just means so much to that team. And doing a lot of what Steph is doing, but his team's having a little bit more success. And so shout out to Damian Lillard, which means, so those are my six that I have kind of in that conversation. These are the guys that I have not talked about yet. LeBron James. And that's just because of injury. Otherwise, he would be right there. Kawhi Leonard. I think him and Paul George just take away from each other's case. And so, and that doesn't really make a ton of sense when you've got other dynamic duos in the lead. But yeah, <laughs> Luka Doncic. And again, this one comes back to team record a little bit. He's been turning it on a little bit more as of late, but kind of struggled at the gate. And that's because he was working himself back into shape after the shortened uh, offseason. James Harden, who has been absolutely instrumental for the Brooklyn Nets. He's been injured now for a bit, which has taken away from his case. Also, the whole Houston thing, I don't think people vote for him just because of the kind of the, the bad taste in your mouth from what he did to that franchise. But has like when he was there, that when he got to Brooklyn till like he got injured, that is MVP. Like he was absolutely insane, putting up crazy numbers, super valuable to that team who was without KD, without Kyrie, and he had an absolutely monster tear through that time. So he has to be at least mentioned. Uh, I guess you could say KD and Kyrie, but the injuries and the missed games, you just that one takes them out. I didn't really have them on my list. Rudy Gobert. This is a name that Utah Jazz fans will just continue to push. He will never win MVP because he just does not put up the offensive stats. But this guy is, again, similar to Chris Paul. You cannot talk about value without talking about Rudy Gobert. The way he dives to the rim just creates the gravity that opens up all of these great shooters around him. And then on defense, guys don't even enter. They don't even step in the painted area of the key because he is there, right? The defensive presence that he brings just makes their defense amazing. And it all is structured on him. He is the most important player on that team. You can have Donovan Mitchell, who has been outstanding this year. He has taken another step off of the bubble performance he had in the playoffs. But Rudy Gobert is, a, is the most important piece on that team. And so that's why I have him as the MVP rather than Donovan Mitchell uh, coming from the Jazz. And then the last guy who I just mentioned, Julius Randle, has slowly crept his way up. I think he's hovering around 8, 9, 10 in that MVP conversation, uh, but has really been stellar. And so he at least deserves to be mentioned because of the season he's had. So yeah, <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of guys there. I think right now I'd have it ranked Jokic 1, Embiid 2, and Giannis three, and then probably have CP three, four and Steph Curry five. But that again, it is so prone to change. There's so many mixed moving pieces. Uh, you could have LeBron James come back for the last two weeks of the season, put up crazy numbers and get that recency bias that propels him at least into like the five or four spot in the MVP conversation. So still like a, a, quite a bit of the season to go. We'll see how it shakes out, uh, but it feels right now like it's Jokic's to lose, um, in in the eyes of the press, at least. I mean, it, it's clear how he could lose it too, with like one injury, missing however many games left in the regular season, and just the way you've talked about Embiid. I mean, James out a lot longer, but that seems like that would be 
enough to do it and probably substantial damage to the Nuggets playoff aspirations. Yeah, well, they're already missing Murray, which actually probably will help his case a little bit. Uh, but yeah, I don't. the Nuggets cannot afford another loss. At least with Jamal Murray, you can replace a lot of his shots and scoring with more shots for Barton, with more shots for Porter Jr., and they put up same similar efficiency. But the thing you miss with Murray is that leadership. And so uh, right now, the Nuggets will be able to sustain the regular season success, but come playoff time, right now they're locked in that 4-5 matchup with the Lakers, which will be awesome. But Murray is a big piece to miss. All right. We look forward to some of the games on tap currently going on. And I think the Leafs game is back up and running. Still 3-2 through the second. Calm down a little bit. So why don't we end this show with a pack opening? Uh, And we'll take a quick break and come back and do that and then sign off. (laughs) And we're back. All right. So again... For those listening on the pod, I will do my best uh, to, uh, what is it, describe the video for you. Um, We're going to be doing another pack opening for NBA Top Shot. I missed out on the rare metallic gold packs today, but because I was eligible for those packs, uh, I was able to get one of the rebound common packs. Hopefully there's something interesting in here because I do not want any more Chetty Osmonds. All right, let's open this bad boy up. We'll grab our popcorn. There's just the thrill of opening a pack, right? We've talked about it many times, but there's there's not much better. <laughs> it's that feeling of anticipation. And we start off with a Clint Capella dunk, a guy who's been having an excellent season in the Atlanta Hawks win over the Toronto Raptors in February. Painful, but a nice lob from Trey Young. So that might actually raise the value a little bit but Clint Capella man having an excellent season on both ends for the Hawks rim protector and he's been dunking everything really what they needed uh especially on the defensive end when you've got a guy like Trey Young next moment opening up a Brooklyn Nets three-pointer from none other than Bruce Brown the heart and soul of this Brooklyn Nets team the guy who for a couple weeks was their center standing at six foot four running that short roll, picking defenses apart. That's when Harden was having so much success. This kid is so much fun to watch. And he plays his butt off on the defensive side. Uh, It was a win for the Nets against the Sacramento Kings. Shout out to Bruce Brown. He's a baller. And our third moment is a layup from the Atlanta Hawks, Kevin Herter, who I have an on-off relationship with in uh, fantasy. (laughs) Because... He's got decent shooting numbers. Nice little crossover there and phys- tough finish in traffic. Ooh, he got Dougie McBuckets with the with a crossover. Um, and that one is a pretty low serial number. So hopefully I can get a quick buck out of that. But there you go. Clint Capella, Bruce Brown, and Kevin Herter. I'll take it over Chetty Osman. That was, that was a little bit disappointing. Nothing headline grabbing for you, Max. Sorry about that, but... I now have 20 moments in my collection, so I should be eligible for quite a few of these pack drafts coming up, and maybe I can get something a little bit more exciting. I'll stop my share now and take a look back at our wonderful fans watching on YouTube and serenade our wonderful fans listening on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, We appreciate you taking a week off with us as well as max moves into his new accommodations at Montreal. Uh, <laughs> we appreciate each and every one of you and we'll continue to pump out this content. Even as we continue to become fully fledged adults, <laughs> max, I will leave it with you. If you have anything left to say, my friend. Here's to all the impulsive decisions you can make sports next door, signing off.